everybody, and welcome to the Who's Who of SAU. This is a podcast that introduces faculty and staff from St. Ambrose University in ways listeners may not know, whether that be a hobby, what they do in their personal life, or what they did in their past. I'm your host, Ryan Sandness, and today I am joined with philosophy professor Tad Rutnick. Uh, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's interesting to know all sorts of weirdness that you can find if definitely. you dig far enough definitely. into it. You can see a bunch of interesting stuff right so if you just want to go into your relation with st ambrose and sort of your history with the university uh yeah i think it's about 14 14 years um hired as an assistant professor and um you know when you're a philosophy professor it's pretty much a calling because people say well why'd you come to st ambrose i'm like well they they picked me I don't, I don't, you don't get a lot of say in this. You're sort of stationed where the opportunities are. And it turned out that it worked out to be a perfect fit for, for my teaching style and, and, and other things. Yeah. So I've, I had you for environmental ethics, Mm -hmm. um, right before the pandemic, you know, started. Um, and it was, it was a very interesting class, I'd say, like I'd, the people that would be in class, you know, we'd finish and we'd we'd leave and be like, you know, that was that was kind of interesting what he would bring up, um, and just kind of the specifics of everything. So if you want to go into just sort of the specific perspectives that you teach in in this class, or just perspectives that you hold as a person, so yeah, sure. Um, I I not really naturally sort of environmental list minded and that sort of that's not my normal way of of thinking I didn't go into it for that reason I got into it I think largely because of an interest in animal ethics and food ethics okay so I know that you're uh, vegan correct yeah vegan fairly recently within the last few years but um, vegetarian for quite a few years okay yeah started in college actually with I don't know, I just had a weird professor who was just like weird and cool. And then I think after that, somehow I decided maybe I can be just as weird and cool as he is if I became vegetarian. Yeah. And that was honestly the the first thing that occurred to me. Later on, there are other reasons for it. You discover the ethical reasons and perhaps even the health reasons. But um, it's sort of a, a, it was a sense of identity. Yeah. So did that... Did that sort of shape, you know, you what you wanted to go into, like with philosophy, like these specific ideas, you know, with you developing vegetarianism, veganism, did that shape sort of what you wanted to teach and how you wanted to teach it? Yeah, um, I think there are a lot of people that do go into it that way. Usually, uh, or my thought was that I went into philosophy for more of the existential issues, the issues of life and death and going through sort of the trauma that we go through, especially in our early lives. Um, so yeah, that all of that was sort of secondary. Um, I will say that another part of my identity at that early, early stage of my life was as a musician. I was not originally born to be a professor at all. I was originally born to be a baseball player, I thought, and then my career was cut tragically short by a uh, lack of talent. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so 
I also had an aptitude for music, so I was in a heavy metal band for many years. I think I did a podcast with some folks years ago about that. Um, so I was in a heavy metal band, and uh, that was what I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, when you're doing that, you always want to distinguish yourself from others, try to be new and interesting, and, and there's this lot of competition among musicians for who can be the most unique and weird. Um, so vegetarianism and veganism, I think, became part of that. And then I discovered later on that that's actually quite a, it's quite a thing among heavy metal musicians to be vegan and vegetarian. Really? Yeah, that's just and one of those interesting paradoxes. You think with all of the aggressiveness that you would hear, um, or that you hear in that type of music, that you'd have characters that are much more, you know, dominating in their mm -hmm. eating habits. And yeah. but no, you've got people who are vegetarian and vegan going all the way back to geezer butler with the old black sabbath band hmm. so i don't know i found that as an interesting part of the identity too yeah so well, like why do, why do you suppose like that is like there's they're they have such a specific you know eating habit but you know they 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 see this art form in in metal music do you think it's just like a creative type aspect maybe i think that's what i thought originally is um to add to the, the interesting way I was thinking about it, um, I had discovered that there were monks, you know, within the Catholic tradition and within Buddhist tradition. And that was an act of spirituality on their part. That was a form of withdrawal from the world. Um, and so I think when I originally started, I figured I would get superpowers of some sort. I mean, there's this idea in philosophy of sublimation where you take... Well, it's, it's from psychology, but where um, if you don't express your desires directly, you withhold desires, then you develop power in other respects. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. You know, when you're young, you always yeah. think in those terms. Um, and then it just kind of sticks with you yeah. after a while for some people. I've actually argued in articles that it's vegetarianism and veganism is similar to a conversion experience for people. And just like in the cases of Christian conversion, sometimes they stick with people, or other times they what's called do what's called black backsliding, and then they fall back into their ways of sin. And the people for whom it sticks are sort of, in a sense, blessed in this way. Okay. Um, and it's you know it's kind of an interesting new take on that yeah. idea. And I know you mentioned in uh, class or something I remembered is that. You know, even if this is kind of sort of related, but, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, universities that, you know, need budget cuts and they look for different uh, programs to cut necessarily. You said that with Catholic institutions, they will never cut, you know, philosophy, theology, Catholic intellectual studies. You know, do you want to sort of elaborate on that for listeners, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get, you know too sort of optimistic about that right. you know and naive to think to think they wouldn't do that but um i mean theo theology of course would be the last thing to go at right. a catholic university um but catholicism is so much tied up with the philosophical tradition i mean much of what people know from the teachings of catholicism comes from thomas aquinas who originally um, 
took ideas from Aristotle. So anyway, it's all it's very much integral to the the tradition. And if you want to have a great degree to prepare you for the priesthood, a lot of the priests do do philosophy degrees. Yeah. So in that sense, yeah, it's kind of a uh, um, a very firm institution with yeah. a very a firm program within institutions like this. So with that being like a firm program, those beliefs that you just mentioned of like, you know, broad ideas of veganism and vegetarianism, they sort of go along with that. Do you think it sort of carries the same bearing necessarily? No, that's an interesting point because also within that same Christian tradition, there is a definite human species bias and there's right. a blind spot to this. So, um, People like Aristotle and even Aquinas would just talk about souls in terms of humans, and if they gave a soul to an animal, that animal still did not have the same moral or ethical status, yeah. which meant that sort of fundamental to the Christian perspective is the idea that it would seem is the idea that people can consume animals. And there's some philosophers who, in historically have even gone so far as to say that's the mark of a, a Christian is to not concern themselves with what they eat with animals, um, eating animals. That tradition's changing a little bit. There, there, There's a priest philosopher, Andrew Lindsay is his name, and he's, I know in our class we talked about speciesism, this idea of discrimination based on one's own species which is along the lines of racism and sexism. Well, Andrew Lindsay, the Catholic priest, was one of the ones who um, first came up with that idea. That's coming right from the, the Christian yeah. Catholic tradition. And of course, there's St. Saint Francis, who had great relationships with animals, including, from what we understand, not eating them. Yeah. So my perspective is a little different, different on that, is um, I... You know, I mentioned before I wasn't particularly like environmentally minded. Um, I'm not also not incredibly sentimental towards animal relationships. I've, I didn't grow up with pets. I didn't grow up on a farm or in a forest where animals were like friends or anything. Yeah. So in an odd way, I think my veganism is sort of a way of separating myself from that world. Yeah. By not eating the flesh like other animals do. So I think that's a mark of dignity of humans to not do that. Um, and I often tell people kind of provocatively that the reason I'm a vegetarian is not because I care about the animals, but I have disdain for them. Right. <laughs> I don't want them part of my body. It's kind of an odd right. thing. I, I don't mean that entirely seriously, but that is kind of part of what I'm thinking. Because I, I know that there's there's kind of this stigma that, you know, philosophy and colleges and you know with what that ent entails but uh just have you felt that stigma necessarily like you know people people always talk about how they have like philosophy professors or art professors that are just you know these these characters and uh i guess people would say that sort of maybe you're a character in a, in a way but uh, yeah. have you sort of experienced that at all? Um, when I was in college, I was always disappointed that many of my philosophy professors were not as 
not as much of characters as I'd wanted. Right. I was always disappointed when they came in in a suit, for example, mm-hmm. in a tie. Yeah. I'm like, really? Is that what we're what we're going for here? Right. Um, and then until I realized that philosophy is such an old and broad discipline that it really covers everything. So it covers, you know, the political world. It covers even conservative beliefs and radical beliefs and liberal beliefs, all of these things. So there are many of different types of philosophers out there, including the ones who are just sort of, quite frankly, a little bit more, in my opinion, more boring and, right. and logical and analytical. Um, and that's fine. Yeah. And that's part of what they do. So it really is, you can't really, you can't stereotype a philosopher. And then if you go around and you look at many of the successful people in the world, you'll see some of them had philosophy degrees and you would not, never have expected it. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the cases right now of that. Well, some of them you would expect. Um, I think Steve Martin, the philosopher, studied philosophy at one point. Yeah. Um, there are presidential candidates who have you know studied right. it, so it's really right. something that goes into many different areas and many different characters. Yeah, our, our philosophers. And I know that some people who are completely you know they have different majors, but they have a gen ed requirement of a philosophy class, and they they're interested in in you know the the basis of philosophy, but it's it's just a matter of like how I guess they teach it that they don't enjoy where. You know, there are these meta questions almost on tests where, you know, it's a matter of which one's more right or which one, you know, is just obscure enough to be mm-hmm. the correct answer. And right. they're, they're interested in, you know, big, big uh, ideas like, you know, the trolley problem and stuff like that. So have you sort of tried to tailor to students to try to make it as, you know, interesting as possible? Like I know in, yeah. in, your, in your class, you know, I think we'd go on walks around campus or something like that and you would uh, just try to teach us something from that. Um, mm-hmm. Just if you want to elaborate on that. Yeah, that's part of the tradition, the old philosophers, you never used to sit in classroom, you would just walk with the philosopher and yeah. they would talk and people would talk in response, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. Um, one of the challenges is when people go into a philosophy class, they're often thinking of the popular sense of philosophy, which is, whatever you're saying is what you believe and there's nothing more to it right right? you know like that's my philosophy so it's just what i believe um and all philosophies are equally good it's sort of the attitude that people have and so how can you judge anything so there's a sense of philosophy is all about non-judgment um in truth it's almost precisely the opposite because there every every philosopher makes an argument that their way is right. So it really is about finding the right answer and finding the truth. Yeah. The question is though, um, I think and this maybe turn off some, some students or, or not, but um, the question is how you go about it. So most philosophers have a sense of irony about themselves, a sense of humor. All philosophers have a sense of humor. I think there's no doubt about it because when you think about this stuff after a while, you start to realize the complete absurdity of what we do, yeah. considering all these ideas. And even Socrates did that. And at the end of the dialogues, you would often have people talking about, where did we get in this conversation? And they're like, well, nowhere. We're right back where we started. Right. 
so there is that that kind of a sense of philosophy that is just about expressing yourself but that doesn't stop from philosophers from believing they're right and arguing that they're right yeah and me being an english major we're uh currently going over or actually last class on tuesday we talked about the science fiction writer philip k dick mm-hmm. and they introduced himself and it was a quote from him and he said he's not a writer he's a philosopher mm-hmm. and it's sort of like there's themes that he wanted to express that way so do you think it's it's just a matter of or philosophy or philosophers trying to just get that message out just regardless of medium or regardless of how yeah that's interesting that he would say that i hadn't heard that before he's yeah. a philosopher more than a writer mm-hmm. um i would say i'm the opposite i'm i consider myself i got into it more because i enjoyed writing yeah. The creative aspect, and then to be a philosopher gave you more creative material. Right. Um, one of my favorite philosophers, I think probably one of the the top on the list of philosophers, Jean-Paul Sartre, mm-hmm. really was much more of a writer. Yeah. Um, he did short stories and, and, and plays. Um, I think that's what they tried to give him the Nobel Priest Prize for. Yeah. And he ended up rejecting it because he didn't want to be a sellout, which is kind of cool. But It's interesting that you bring up Sartre because I, uh, for me and my friend from back home, we kind of geek out over philosophy. And a, oh. a big one we like is Albert Camus. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, I've read The Stranger, and yes. it's very much like there's story to it, and then you can see a complete shift towards you know the climax and the end of it, where mm-hmm. it's just a message is trying to be sent instead of plot instead of setting it's 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 a message so do you think that's at the end of the day what philosophy is regardless of how it's expressed yeah i'm and for folks who don't know the stranger by albert camus it's it's a very short book yeah and it's very accessible it's written in the style like of Hemingway. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think the, the French um, writers were trying to emulate that style because that was new. It was more journalistic, straightforward, yeah. everyday person type of language. And so it was written that way. And, and um, it's, you know, I, I do think with that story, I've tried to teach it a number of different times in my classes. And I always find when I get to like, trying to figure out the philosophy in it I'd end up failing and just like pointing out what a just a beautiful story it is right a character study of some people say it's about alienation and and all sorts of other things but um, ultimately I think the point is you do have to stand by what you believe yeah I think that's the 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 climax of the whole story and if I'm even if you believe nothing you stand by believing something I mean it is if I He's existentialism, or like I, I hear yeah. his name tossed around with that. Yeah, I, I don't. He's more of a writer, and he was friends with Sartre, and they had oh, yeah. an interesting um, kind of jealous relationship because he's always the good-looking guy. If mm-hmm. anyone's ever, you know, if you do a search of Albert Camus, first picture will come up is this really incredibly cool-looking one with the, the, guy the, cigarette. With the cigarette. Yeah, he got the cigarette and the upturned collar, and you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I want to do. And Sartre's the one with the really lazy eye uh, that goes one yeah, way. Yeah, he was just ugly, froggy-looking, oh, yeah. and um, and he tried to play up his charm, and Simone uh-huh. de Beauvoir, his um, longtime lover, would even make fun of him, that, is that, fun of him for that because he would really try to 
play up being the ladies' man as a philosopher, whereas yeah. Camus never had to do that because he was just sort of naturally smoking a cigarette, mm -hmm. being cool. Yeah. So yeah, there is that whole other side of philosophy. It's the character studies, you know, and each one of them. Even I'm to this day am learning interesting things about philosophers that I didn't know, like Rene Descartes, the mm -hmm. famous philosopher would spend most of his days like in an oven thinking about stuff and he would go off to the bars and talk and they were smoking like I don't know opium or something back in the day you know right. which made them seem very much like an ordinary philosophy person nowadays <laughs> but you don't think of that because you think of them as having a tie on ultimately but right yeah each philosopher does have probably a pretty good story behind them okay and I guess sort of this whole conversation about, you know, these specific philosophers, these sp specific ideas. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a thing or popular outside of, you know, a college or a college campus, you know, high schoolers or people below that age, they don't really understand that and they don't really grow into themselves, I guess, in college, you know, that, that was the mm -hmm. case for me, I guess. Yeah. So I guess with all these perspectives with philosophy, did, are you a proponent of, of the fact that just perspectives are changed, you know, wholeheartedly in, in college and, you know, tradition or intellectual traditional colleges? Like they, they say St. Ambrose is, you know, rooted in the Catholic intellectual tradition or something like that. You know, are you a proponent of that? Yeah, the Catholic intellectual tradition means Catholic almost in the lowercase c, which means sort of universal. Yeah. So when, um, and you know, you'll probably talk with other people that closer to this maybe than I am. Um, even though I'm Catholic, I don't, I didn't grow up in it. Right. But um, it comes from Thomas Aquinas who believed that truth came from many different sources. You've got revealed truth, but you also have the truth of the sciences. And you also have truth coming from other religions. And so there is that fundamental openness to truth from wherever it comes within the tradition, and, and you can't get any more Catholic than Thomas Aquinas in this right. respect. So, um, yeah, the idea that somehow Catholicism is locked into particular ways of thinking, I, I don't know where that really comes, well, may, I don't know where it comes from, but it's kind of, a, I think, a fundamental, yeah. fundamental mistake. As is the idea that somehow Catholicism is fundamentally um, conservative or fundamentally liberal when as far as I when I look at it it's sort of fundamentally radical in its own weird way right I call it tradical it's like radical traditional sort of an idea um, so anyway yeah that that and that shows up very much here at St. Ambrose yeah. as well and so. I guess for people who aren't Catholic and, and just see philosophy you know outside of religion and have their perspective sort of changed have you seen that with students in your classes like them coming in and being so set in their ideas mm -hmm. and then just have that changed yeah i that's an interesting point because i think there are a lot of professors that go for that yeah you know it's like the comedians who go for the big laugh you know well, professors go for the big change in the student and i don't know maybe it's part of my own background or my own like mild social anxiety or something but I would feel really bad if, <laughs> oddly enough, to just change somebody like that. 
especially if it were towards a particular agenda. Right. You know, and I know there probably are teachers and professors who like go into this because they kind of have an agenda, and you know, God bless them, that's fine. You know, you got to get that stuff out. But um, yeah, I'm always a little shy about that in terms of what would happen that would change their mind from their traditional beliefs. And I'll usually end up accommodating so much. They're defending their traditional beliefs more than any right. of the new beliefs, you know? Right. Um, but at the same time, I had that experience. That was my experience. I had a community college professor who was a theologian, but he also had a degree in philosophy. And... Um, I didn't know any of what this world was like, you know. But that actually opened me up to religion because I never grew up with that. So yeah. you see what I mean? Like there are a lot of students who it's the opposite. They might grow up with a religious background and philosophy opens up the world right. outside of that. To me, I had the outside and then philosophy opened up. Wait a minute. There are religious ideas. Yeah. There are arguments for the existence of God. I thought it was just dumb faith, you know? Mm -hmm. No, there are people arguing for this. There are reasons to believe this. And I mentioned this with Carl and Stella, like of, yeah. you know, colleges changing their perspectives. And they mentioned it as a very positive experience and a very and something that's very beneficial for someone's, you know, development of, I don't know, their personality, their character, you know, stuff like that. You know, are you the same? Like, do you... Uh, agree necessarily or disagree necessarily um well speaking of that if anyone hasn't seen the the podcast right. with carl and stella go back and see that because they're remarkable people yeah you know um growing up well stella is is grows i think was is from finnish background and and carl from new york and then mm -hmm. they had this radical transformation to um krishna consciousness stuff um yeah, so your question was, do I, guess, yeah, do I had you, a similar Yeah, kind do you of experience. share the same, you know, sentiment about, you know, it being such a it such a, you know, positive, you know, experience for people. Yeah. Cuz it sound it sounded like that when you were mentioning, you know, what ideas are presented to college students. Right. And you mentioned you, it sounded like it was a positive experience in your eyes. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think about that because I don't know even know if that came in college now that I think about it. I had some great high school teachers. One of them was my English teacher, had vocabulary lesson every mm -hmm. day. We had to learn vocabulary. But here's what I learned is like a, some years later, maybe 10 years later, I went through my stuff because, you know, we move all the time when we're philosophers because we, for a while, you don't have a real permanent job. Right. And I came across this book and it was Emerson, the collected works of Ralph Waldo Emerson mm -hmm. from her classroom. So I stole one of her books from her classroom. Now, why is that remarkable? Because I was a... a, a high school student who did not care about anything. I did not care about learning. I mean, I just, I was into music. I just didn't think anything about college. Um, but there was something in Emerson, maybe the way she taught it or the way we read it, that encouraged me to steal a book yeah. <laughs> of Emerson. It's always an English teacher. That, English you know, teacher, it's... yeah, I think that was. Um, but see that I think that's kind of my point is that oftentimes you don't see it at the time. It's so difficult to see what's happening to you at that particular moment, right? Yeah. 
you only can reflect on it later. Yeah. So um, I think, it, yeah, it goes back to even some teachers I had within, within high school who were just interesting. I thought they were interesting even though I wasn't interested in, in school at all. I don't know what changed that. I think what changed that yeah. is me deciding that I wanted to be a philosophy professor, and then I had to get my stuff together. Right. I had to. And you've said that you've been here for 14 years as a philosophy I professor. I think so, yeah. Or, or around there, I, mm-hmm. I, I guess. Um, have your perspectives on any of like these philosophies changed You know, because of you know, the way students respond to what you teach or what the university wants you to teach or anything in that regard? Um, I don't know what the university wants me to teach. I don't or think not, nece- not yeah, necessarily, no, I, right. But. No, that's, no I, mean, I mean that as an important point right. is that there's not anyone telling you what they want, at least at this university. Right. So um, it's really just a process of evolution of finding the stuff that kind of works. Yeah. I mentioned comedians before. I often say that f- professors are kind of like improv comedians. Yeah. And that you play off the crowd and you see what works and you have little jokes that you can throw in every once in a while. And by jokes, I mean philosophical ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's always a, a process of. I, I would never have thought that I would be teaching and envir- be interested in teaching environmental ethics when yeah. I started. In fact, ethics was the most boring part of philosophy, I thought. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I still teach a philosophy of life class, um, and that's entirely based on interests I already have. Yeah. So yeah, there was a, a bit of a evolution into what you what you think you're going to teach, and what you end up teaching, and what you end up enjoying teaching and what students seem to get out of it right and i know that there is some overlap like i I remember when i was signing up for classes with uh environmental ethics it was you and father bud that that taught it you know what i know this kind of sounds like you know a way to you know promote yourself and i i don't necessarily mean it that way but Mm -hmm. what makes your class distinct or what makes you stand out in your eyes yeah, I don't know how uh, Father Brian or Father um, Bud. Father Bud, yeah. yeah, he teaches it great. Yeah, he's he's really part of that uh, the Catholic intellectual tradition. I think of him more of a philosopher than a theologian, right. as anything. Um, I think he comes from the environmental side, the protection, the carekeeper of the earth. So he really presents the environmentalist side of the christian catholic tradition yeah um i've heard he's like a pescatarian i think you know so he eats only fish um but yeah i i like i mentioned before i get into it from the perspective of of food ethics yeah and um the idea that if you don't have to kill something you shouldn't kill something unless you have a pretty good reason for it and right. i'm still searching for reasons why people should have to kill and eat animals yeah so yeah that's kind of a little different focus from from the way the other people might might teach the course okay yeah and you know it goes back to uh when i had class with you 
Um, I think it's the same for every professor during the pandemic. You know, it was really just a forced change upon people. And I think you kind of related that to the environment because mm. we were seeing, you know, effects with the environment and, you know, less human interaction. So has, has COVID sort of changed the way you teach, you know, your curriculum or what you want to get into? Yeah, that's actually, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I have been telling people that there are things about the way I do things now that I don't want to change. Right. So you're not, you're not supposed to have a lot of people in the room during mm -hmm. COVID. So mm -hmm. we broke it up into three groups and students came one of those three days right. and then did other stuff on the other time to prepare for that class. I know at least at the beginning of class, students were really into that preparation. That was like ideal teaching because they had read the material, they had questions about it, and we were building our discussion off of the students' own interests rather than <clears throat> just a lecturing situation. Yeah. So that idea of only teaching six or eight students at a time, I got knew more about the interests of the students there's more accountability for both of us. Yeah. Um, students aren't in physically in class at the same amount of time, but the quality is the same. Yeah. I'm teaching just as much. I'm working just as hard because I'm doing all of these different sections of the course. Do you think, like, in the future, y you'll change the curriculum, you know, once COVID and, mm -hmm. you know, more people are vaccinated and it becomes sort of in the rearview mirror? Do you think it will shape how you want to teach? I I would like to stick with the smaller smaller groups yeah. of, of students. Um, so I you know, it, it's gonna what's gonna change well what has changed is I think professors are now considering, all right, what is the value of people together in one physical space in order to do what? I mean, if you have a PowerPoint, a PowerPoint technically could be accessed by anyone at any point. Right. What's the value added of the professor? And that's an important question to ask. You know, what is the value added of a professor when you have everything, whether it's possible to be recorded or PowerPointed? Um, why are we here, right? Mm -hmm. Couldn't we just record everything and have students listen to it at their leisure? Well, in part, yes, if it's just information. Sure. If it can be comparted through a video or a PowerPoint, let's do that and let students access it when they're available and work around their schedules. I guess there's a common consensus with people that, you know, a virtual format has the power to reach more people. Mm -hmm. You know, is that a benefit that you look forward to? Well, that, that would be one of the benefits, right? The reaching more people. I know my academic philosophy conferences, they're looking at online mm -hmm. options as a way of, well, first of all, environmentally, it's a good way. Instead of having people off into the, you know, in airplanes going around the country, um, right. you, you can access it online. But what I what did want to say about that is that even that conveying of information can be done through video, but there is an element of humanity that happens when people are in the same room interacting spontaneously. Yeah, I mean, I guess technically you could do that also through a 
you know, a, a WebEx meeting. That's it's not really. The it doesn't same, do that, though. right? Yeah, even even meeting, you know, the the conversation clues are a little bit off, and then there's something about. And we mentioned this just before we recorded this, but there's something about the professor moving around the classroom in a certain way. Yeah, you know, many times we have a difficult time sitting still mm-hmm. and lecturing. And that movement is part of the whole show. Especially when, or especially majors like philosophy that are very discussion-based, you know, that that sort Mm -hmm. of needs that level of interaction for ideas to be, you know, across, conveyed. Um, And especially when we mentioned, you know, that that change in perspective in students, too. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it, it seems essential towards, I guess, you know, a liberal arts education, they always love to say. Right. You know, do you agree? And that, so that is important, that actual tangible type of interaction, you know? Um, But, you know, the universities are so behind the times. I mean, the universities are pretty much in a medieval mindset where the professors are the only ones that had the books. Right. And they lecture to people because people couldn't afford books. Mm -hmm. And so there was an actual need for the professor to talk you know in front of all these people that's how you communicated well we're still kind of stuck in that so um the communication in many ways can happen virtually but there is that element i just i don't think people will get over that tangible element of people in physical proximity talking and interacting in that form of spontaneous way yeah that can't happen even in a WebEx meeting. Right. Especially like big universities where it's just lecture based and it, there's kind of, you know, a dis- disillusionment with that where it's just very boring and very just tedious at times. Mm-hmm. You know, with a liberal arts education, it's, it's, there's a benefit of, you know, small class sizes and small, you know, where professors really get to know you. And, mm-hmm. and I guess that kind of relates to covid and Mm -hmm. you know just them being very close-knit that's probably really what the value added of professors is is students can have access to the professors themselves right right? in the same way that you know you can have a youtube star who Mm -hmm. everybody knows has a million of followers and everything Mm -hmm. but no one has real access to them right can't ask them real questions can't throw them off guard you know and um can't directly respond as as well um yeah it is interesting I'm, i've also gotten into tiktok lately oh, for some man. reason have you done that i i have stayed away from that i mean i've seen them they've you know permeated in other yeah. you know platforms but i have not i i don't <laughs> i almost thought about doing some you know they're minute long things right but, because it cycles quickly, you know, if, if it's something that really needs to be impressed upon someone, it's not a bad format right. for doing that. And I'm learning, I'm learning languages that way, mm-hmm. you know, French and Portuguese. I, I learned that through, through TikTok people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, you don't have access. So sometimes they'll do like a TikTok live situation, yeah. um, which is weird because it's so awkward. Nobody knows what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't talk. You have to type in things and they're scrolling through it. And it's just weird. So you really need to have that students in class, even small groups of students. Yeah. Um, 
who then have just much more of a direct access to the mind and of the professor. You probably know this from having smaller classes right. that the professors would oftentimes tell different interesting stories because mm-hmm. it's more of an inti- intimate group of people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's the value added that people don't get from other places in the world necessarily. Yeah. So I think I'll still keep a job for a while. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Tad, for joining me on this podcast. I'd like to thank David Baker of KALA and KALA Studios. This has been the Who's Who of SAU. Thank you.